0: So today we'll be looking at the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew's Gospel. We won't be able to get very far into it. That's not really the intent. In fact, the intent is to focus on the Sermon of the Mount as the foundation of Jesus' preaching. So you're going to want to open up to Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to do a little preliminary glance at what comes before so we can understand just how foundational this is, how Matthew uses this sermon really as a kind of Template for how Jesus preaches everywhere. This is a nice, I mean, I have no reason to doubt that when Jesus sat down, he preached this sermon from word A to word Z, but it also is indicative of the kind of preaching he did and the various themes and topics that were common to his preaching throughout his ministry. So we're going to take a look at that, but of course, we're going to spend most of our time on this foundational sermon on the foundation of the sermon which is the opening the beatitudes the blessed are statements let's begin with an invocation and prayer in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit amen our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so as you've opened up your Bible to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. I'll ask you to leave a finger or bookmark there and just flip back to chapter 1. Again, a very helpful thing when reading the Scriptures is to just get a sense of the immediate context, and especially if you're toward the beginning of a work, you can find some other major event or marker in the work. Um, to go back to that point and see what's transpired. It can really help you gain a sense for what the author is doing and intending with the section that you happen to be looking at. So Matthew's Gospel begins with uh, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, which of course we'll have time to revisit as we approach in the church here. We're in the The upcoming Sunday is the third to the last Sunday of the church year. We observed all saints, which of course the Beatitudes are the text for, the gospel text chosen for all saints. We can touch on that later if that's of interest to you as to why that might be the case. But then we are also looking um, toward the end of the church year, which always has us looking at the end of the age and the second coming of Christ. And that desire for him to come, kind of transitions us into the season of Advent, Advent from the Latin Adventus, which means coming. And so we're kind of simultaneously then meditating on his incarnation, his coming in human flesh for our salvation, and also on his parousia, his second coming for the judgment of the world. And that's also our manifest redemption. The judgment day for Christians is the best day it's not a mixed bag in the least. It's like Christmas number two, the greater and forever Christmas. We should look at judgment with just as much, and Christ's second coming with just as much eager anticipation, and more, and more joy, even than we consider Christmas, his first coming. Okay? And as we're going through those, those comings, then, um, that inevitably leads us to... Christ's birth and then from the birth we go into the epiphany season we start a new cycle the first half of which is the life of Christ um, from his birth onto his uh, early you know his baptism his early ministry and then taking us into Lent and Holy Week Good Friday uh, Easter his resurrection his ascension etc and then the second half of the church year is his teachings. We go systematically through his teachings. So You can see that our years really do, you know, we're we're traveling around as a church, not around the S-U-N, but the S-O-N, and each year we're orbiting him, his life and his teaching, his life and his teaching. Okay, so as we're looking at Matthew's Gospel, then, Chapter 1, the genealogy, which, of course, is going to come upon us as we meditate upon that, um, Advent and Christmas... Um, Jesus is born, the birth narrative here in Matthew. Also you have this in Luke. You do not have a birth narrative in Mark's Gospel. Or a birth narrative as such, at least not familiar to us in John. You have the visit of the wise men in chapter 2. So these are Gentiles coming to Christ and In these early chapters of Matthew, you have a great amount of emphasis put on the kingship of Jesus. That's the point of the genealogy. You can see that in verse 1 of chapter 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and then traces through the Abrahamic and Davidic line, showing that Christ is the true king. Christ is born and the wise men come and worship him as a king so you have him king of the jews but also the gentiles are coming and bowing down before him he's the king of the jews and the gentiles as well that in view herod of course is part of this narrative and he's all freaked out why because herod considers himself to be king of the jews you can see that um, Matthew tips his hand there. Like, Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, who? The king. Yeah, so you can see two kings set up in opposition. And it's kind of fun to see how frequently Matthew refers to him as the king, but just carrying on. With verse 1, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born? King of the Jews. There's the juxtaposition with Christ. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this. Okay, you can see what Matthew is doing. He's making this great emphatic point between the earthly, fallen king, Herod, and the heavenly uh, king, Christ, who has come. All right, don't want to belabor that point flight into Egypt is next of course because King Herod slaughters the innocents in Bethlehem um, not infrequently that you see estimations of around 15,000 uh, babies slain by Herod um, Christ escapes when Joseph through angelic Intervention takes his family to Egypt, and thus a fulfillment of prophecy, of course, because he comes up out of Egypt, which is one of the prophecies of the Messiah. And he returns to Nazareth, likewise fulfilling the prophecy that he should be called a Nazarene. So we see another major theme in Matthew's Gospel and that is that Jesus is the Old Testament Messiah, the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures in regard to the Messiah. Everything that Jesus is and everything that Jesus does is fulfilling scripture, which is I mean, wonderful. We shouldn't take it for granted. But as a kind of presupposition, what kind of theology is Matthew doing? He's doing a sola scriptura theology. This is who the scriptures say the Messiah is. This describes Jesus perfectly. This is what the Old Testament scriptures say the Messiah will do. This describes Jesus perfectly. This is what the Old Testament scriptures describe that the Messiah will say. This fits Jesus perfectly. And so that's really Matthew's way of doing his gospel, his structuring of his gospel. Uh, Again, so that you might read it yourself and believe that Jesus is the Christ. All right, as is the case in all the gospel narratives, we get no real understanding of Jesus between his infancy and his baptism by John in the Jordan, with the exception in Luke's gospel. We're told about um, him being roughly 12 years old and going down to the temple, if you remember that, and his parents losing him, needing to go back and find him, and he is there teaching the teachers. It's the only glimpse we have. Um, So chapter 3, 3, You have John the Baptist, Matthew 3, um, latter part of uh, chapter 3, Jesus is baptized. Immediately upon being baptized, he is driven to the wilderness by the Holy Spirit that has just come upon him in his baptism to do battle with the unholy spirit. And they again, furthering this theme of the fulfillment of the scriptures and a kind of proto sola scriptura, That entire spiritual battle between Christ and the devil takes place through the scriptures. So um, Christ quoting the scriptures, three different places. Um, The devil quoting the scriptures uh, in the second temptation at least. Jesus bests him. The devil has no choice but to leave. And then Jesus begins his ministry. Now, a couple of things I'll point out because we're at the origin and foundation of Jesus' ministry. We're going to be at the origin and foundation of his preaching here in a minute. Um, A couple of things to point out here. uh, If you look at verse 12 of chapter 4, now, when he heard that John had been arrested, John the Baptist, of course, Jesus withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet of Isaiah might be fulfilled. See, yet another scriptural fulfillment. Now, what does the prophet say very briefly? The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness, have seen a great light. Okay, what is the point? That Matthew, again, is taking great pains to show that the messiah as prophesied in the old testament scriptures has come not only for the jews but also for the gentiles that's the whole point of this theology by geography okay as we go into the latter half of four we see jesus calling the first of his disciples here in matthew's account exactly four are called And one could do some work with the chronology and see if there are, in fact, more than four present at the Sermon of the Mount. You'd have to do that comparatively by looking at the different Gospels. But here in Matthew's Gospel, only four are named. Peter, or who is called Simon, and uh, Andrew, uh, James, and John. All right. And then... uh, so, at this foundational point, we really have the formal start of Jesus' ministry. We have um, him calling the first four of his disciples. Then we get this uh, treatment in 23 and following that he went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. See, what is that gospel of the kingdom? That's kind of what our question is. It's just assumed at this point. Good news of the reign. Okay, obviously, it's going to be whose reign if he's the king, his reign, the reign of God come, the reign of the Messiah, son of David, come. That means a lot if you're Old Testament literate, maybe not so much if you're not. And what is he doing? Healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So he's lifting the curse and alleviating their suffering. Verse 24, so his fame spread throughout all Syria And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons. Now we already saw by his defeat of the devil in the wilderness that he has manifested his greater authority over the demonic powers and that continues as he um, is, is here treating those who are oppressed by demons. Also included epileptics and paralytics and he healed them. So he's lifting the curse and he's driving away the force, the forces of evil. Of course, both of these tie back into the fall of man into sin where Adam and Eve give themselves over to subservience to the word of the devil. Thus, the evil spirits, the demons, have rule over man. And we simultaneously fall under the curse of God. And so both of these things you can see that Jesus has come to undo. This is the fulfillment of the offspring of the woman who has come to crush the serpent's head, to undo the work of sin and ultimately death. All right, he's got great crowds. This is verse 25. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Now by by mentioning Jerusalem and Judea and beyond and maybe not so much beyond the jordan but at least in part what you under, what you got to understand here is that this is probably a mixed gathering you've got jews and who knows maybe mostly jews but you definitely have a sizable portion of gentiles who have been drawn into this ministry of jesus so already you have a mixed crowd all right look at chapter five verse one this gets us into the material proper for today seeing the crowds he went up on the mountain now of course we don't know what mountain this is but it doesn't matter all that much if it did matthew would tell us what doesn't matter is that this is a specific mountain but that he did in fact go up upon a mountain all right can you think of a time where the chief teacher in the old testament the chief prophet of the old testament is there with a mountaintop he goes up to the mountain and he comes down to the from the mountain with profound teaching Moses yes exactly right Moses and Mount Sinai is what's in the background here. That's, obviously, this isn't Mount Sinai. It's probably why, why Matthew doesn't specify what mountain it was. Because, again, it's not the name of the mountain, but it's that it is a mountain. And the way that this is written and articulated, we are to see a new Moses and a new prophet around or yeah around moses are gathered the crowds of the people now around jesus are gathered the crowds of the people moses from the mountain jesus from the mountain moses receives the word from god jesus does not why he is god that's precisely the point he is god thus he sat down The people probably stood. That was the custom. A custom I'd like to bring back. I'll preach my sermons sitting down while everybody else (laughs) stands. And it would be easier to preach longer sermons then, too. Yeah. (laughs) And people wouldn't fall asleep as readily if they're standing up. See all the advantages? Well... We have to guess that at that a little bit, that they were standing. All we see definitively is, is that Jesus sat down, and the point is, sitting down is authoritative, and we're contrasting this with Moses, that now this is God in human flesh on the mountaintop, sitting down himself to speak. And then, of course, his disciples came to him. So from Matthew's version, we want to see these four disciples gathered around Jesus. We, we could infer some uh, symbolism there, but I don't really want to go too far into that. Um, I think it's enough to just have that image that Matthew paints in our minds. Okay, even the way that Matthew then introduces his sermon and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, is formulaic. We are, even with that language, inclined to see Jesus as the great messianic prophet, as God in human flesh opening in his mouth to speak. Okay? So, um, one thing to keep in mind is that if you flip through what has preceded in Matthew's gospel, you get a red letter statement that is jesus speaks directly to john at his baptism that's the first word that comes from jesus own mouth in matthew's gospel and it's very short john would not baptize him jesus says let it be no uh, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness that's it the next red letters you get Are only Jesus quoting scripture over and against the devil okay as you keep going through Jesus uh, through Matthew's gospel it is very spartan at chapter 4 verse 17 we, we read from that time Jesus began to preach saying repent for the kingdom or reign of heaven is at hand that's it Then he calls his four disciples, the only red letter Spartan here, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So what Matthew has done masterfully for us is built some suspense. We don't really know the content of Jesus' preaching. We just have these generalizations, good news of the kingdom a call for repentance which here would be seen in the wide sense conversion that they would convert because in him has come the reign of heaven he is heaven's king come down to earth and so can be converted to him follow him and now he is opening his mouth and definitively saying so it is right to view the entirety of the sermon of the mount again as foundational for the preaching ministry of jesus and as representative of its whole Okay, well, right before we get into it, the suspense is built. It's the cliffhanger. Let's pause and see if you have any questions or any comment or anything you notice that you'd like to add um, as we have worked ourselves up to this point. There's a hand up here in the front. Uh, so the four disciples that were there that came to him, Andrew, Peter, James and John, Matthew's not mentioned there. Correct. Yeah, so, Matthew comes along later in the so narrative. Do you think he might have been present at the... It's possible. It's just not necessary to think so. Um, I don't know really one way or the other. I would I would be just slightly inclined to doubt that, but it's possible. There are things in the Gospel, for example, um, if you just think on Matthew 4 with the temptation, no one was there but... Jesus. So Jesus at some point in time related this to his disciples and or directly to Matthew or his disciples related it to Matthew and Matthew writes it down. So there are things in the gospel where you can see that only maybe one or a few of the disciples were present. They would have had to communicate that and likewise or Jesus himself just had this experience and he communicated that such that it could be written later later on. Yeah, Matthew himself not in view here. He comes later on. Okay. Was there anything else that we wanted to add? Okay. There's one one hand in the back. We can entertain that, and then we'll jump in here to the Sermon on the Mount. It occurs to me, <coughs> excuse me, that we can't use our way of speaking, or our memory or retention as a template for what went on there, because um, the spoken word was really important, and they kept they honored it. Yeah. So it was verbatim. I mean, it was true in almost every culture. Yeah. You have a very, a very different human dynamic going on and, and a supernatural dynamic. The human dynamic, of course, being, I mean, I can barely remember my middle name, thanks to Google, because it's not valuable for my, my you know, our brains and our bodies are inherently lazy. Our bodies, if they had their choice, would waste away to nothing, you know, but, um, but we have to force them to be active and retain muscle and not retain fat and that kind of thing. Our minds are the same way. If they could do anything, they'd just be a puddle of nothing. And uh, Google helps that because, I don't know, let's just Google it. Yeah, uh, Where the mind is active, where the body is active, it's strong and capable. And so just at the human element, first century people had much stronger and more capable memories than we have. And there's no doubt about that. It's exhibited in many, many ways. By the way, it's not just Bible times. If you go back, for example, to the time of the Reformation and the Reformers, they are quoting Bible passages like from memory. They're not Googling it. They're not even looking it up. There's no Bible index. Uh, They have large passages and uh, just a great breadth of passages from the Church Fathers completely committed to memory. They're not going to just type into Google and find the reference. So even even a short while ago, we can see people, human beings, on just the human-to-human level having a far greater capacity than we have today. But there's also a supernatural element involved, that Jesus promises he will send his Holy Spirit, and his Holy Spirit will bring all these things to mind. That's the language. The Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance what has happened and what has been said to them so that they can recount it perfectly and accurately unto us. And that's the supernatural element. We don't want to discount that either. Okay, so we can be quite certain that we have um, a representation, an accurate representation of exactly what happened and or was said. All right? As we jump into the Beatitudes, and I'm not going to deal with, at least at the outset, any of the false (laughs) understandings. understandings of the Beatitude, which are multitude. They are multitude. Um, you've probably heard them called the attitudes and this kind of thing, and I don't know. It's all kind of trite and nonsensical. Uh, I think, self-evidently, there's something much deeper going on here. Alright, Jesus begins. He opens his mouth, teaching them, saying, Blessed are the poor and spirit. Now, this is compelling This completely subverts expectations. It's not what you would expect in the least. I think it's true even today. Nobody aspires to be poor in spirit. Now, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means to be beggarly in terms of the spiritual reality. I think what's going on here linguistically is very similar to where Jesus says... I came not for the righteous but for sinners does that mean there's this class of people who are in fact righteous and don't need a savior no there's so there's a little bit of a play on words a little bit of a linguistic play going on a little let the reader understand and that is I came Not for the righteous, but for the sick. Everybody, in fact, is sick. I didn't come for those who think they're well. I didn't come for those... uh, Everyone is unrighteous. I didn't come for those who think they're righteous. I came for those who know they're unrighteous, who know they're sinful, who know they're sick. Okay, and I think a similar thing is going on here. In truth, every human being is impoverished of spirit, is poor of spirit. Apart from Christ, we have nothing and can do nothing. Does that make sense? But what I think Jesus is blessing are those who realize this. The same way they realize they're sinners, realize they're unrighteous, realize they're sick, realize they're poor in spirit. That's the blessing. Okay, so already there's a paradoxical and thought provoking, intriguing thought paradigm that jesus brings us into when he simply says blessed are the poor in spirit well look at the overall structure of the beatitudes in a minute there are eight or nine depending upon how one counts this first one um, forms an inclusio with the eighth in this regard blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs estin is present tense the kingdom or reign of heaven now as a foundational statement of jesus ministry and remember back at verse 17 of chapter 14 repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand to whom does the kingdom of heaven belong to the poor in spirit okay now that can function as law or gospel frankly okay i'm not even sure that's a helpful way to think here um it can function as law if you go well i'm not poor in spirit and i don't want you know i guess i want something to do with jesus but i count myself to be rich in spirit yeah okay so already then you're finding you and jesus at odds okay so in that sense it can function as law but it can also function as gospel, and I think it's primary, primary mode and mindset. Jesus has come for the spiritually sick. Jesus has come for the unrighteous. Jesus has come for the poor in spirit. Jesus has come for those of us that we know, apart from God, we're beggars. And we know that, apart from his blessings, we truly have nothing. Alright, so I think that that's what's going on here. I think, um, properly speaking, it, it would be best to conceive of it, as, at least as Jesus' intentions, it is gospel. It is a blessing to the poor in spirit, which he sees. And insofar as it's received, um, this reign or kingdom of heaven belongs to them, present tense. So that would include us. Clear enough, or any questions there on the... We're talking about Luther. I guess it's Luther's birthday today. Luther um, is said uh, among his last words, perhaps even his very last, to to have said we are beggars all. Or um, written in a note that was later found in his coat pocket or something. I mean it's hard to know how much of this is apocryphal or fictitious but uh, it said uh, whatever the German is Wir sind Bettler alles or whatever we're all beggars. So interesting that that was in one degree or another his dying thought was this idea that we are poor in spirit. We are beggars who simply receive from God. Okay? Everybody all right. Yep. Okay, so then on to the second. Blessed are those who mourn, for they, and here's the most notable, well, I don't know, the thing that is different from the first, right off the bat. For they shall be comforted there's a future tense there in fact we don't see the present tense again until the eighth beatitude so foundationally blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven secondarily blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted so the promise of comfort is a future reality now blessed are those who mourn is obviously every bit if not even to our ear, more controversial than the first. Blessed are the poor in spirit is not something you would expect a great religious leader to say. Become great in spirit and follow me is what you would expect him to say. Likewise, not blessed are those who mourn, but blessed are those who are happy isn't the whole goal to be happy it always has been to be happy and fulfilled and jesus throws that right on its head blessed are those who mourn penthuntas which is to mourn or lament uh, a a tertiary uh, kind of definition so i wouldn't read too much into this are those like the feeling of guilt penthuntas can be blessed are those who feel guilt so mourning lamenting feeling of guilt Now, in some respects, I think that this is valid to consider even at this early point, and so I'm going to bring it out. I just don't think it's the end-all, be-all that people who preach this way think it is, and that is that Jesus himself is the fulfillment of the... Beatitudes. I don't think that that's quite so convincing, although it's worth somewhat keeping in your mind. Um, Is Jesus poor in spirit? Not in the way we are. You'd have to redefine poor in spirit for it to fit Jesus. You could see him as humble of spirit, as faithful in spirit, etc., You'd have to redefine it a little. Um, What about those who mourn? Well, Jesus is said to be the uh, man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So in some sense, that fits. And in some sense, that's, well, I think almost in every sense, that's more helpful uh, of a comparison. So when Jesus says that we mourn, well, why does Jesus mourn? He mourns over sin. He mourns over the state of the world, etc. And, of course, he's come to do something about that, to turn mourning into joy and so we who mourn over the state of our fallen lives our fallen world etc are here said to be blessed why for we shall be in the future comforted and it's not to say we aren't comforted now but Jesus would have us look to our ultimate comfort given when the cause for mourning is removed I said what Broken. For um, blessed are those who mourn. Yeah, in a sense, to recognize your brokenness and the bro- broken, fractured reality of ourselves and our world. Yeah, I don't think that that's I don't think that's terribly, terribly off. So I won't contradict. Past me <laughs> on that one. Learn more. Yeah, the word broken is just kind of a troubled word in our context because people import all kinds of things underneath it and you want to be careful of that. Um, sometimes it's like people will describe their impenitence as brokenness. <laughs> so that's kind of a problem. Yeah, please. Oh. Sorry to have you exercising so much there. You're, you're getting at some something that I wanted to ask a question about. And that is, has anybody done a study, or have you ever gone through the Beatitudes and and looked at it from law and gospel standpoint? In other words, is what you're talking about, this comforting, that, that sounds like gospel to me, Sure. yet some of it sounds like law to me? Um, yeah, I, it, I can kind of carry on. I'm not... I'm not exactly convinced in and of myself that it's that helpful, and here's why. Okay, so I, I, think, I think historically Luther found the Sermon on the Mount by and large to be a sermon of law. I don't think that that's right. And I, that's not just like, oh, well, who are you, Rody, to contradict Luther? It's because up until Luther, that was not the consensus view and even after Luther, that's not really the consensus view. Okay. Uh, so Luther was wont to see the Beatitudes as the, I don't know, cursy attitudes. These <laughs> 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 Here are all these, these blessed states that you'll never attain to, so feel condemned. And he saw that as Christ's preparatory work so that we would draw near to him in his crucifixion and receive forgiveness there. Um, the only problem with seeing this as pure gospel, and I do kind of see it as intended gospel, is that it is Jesus is a more masterful theologian than that, and there are ways in which these words of his can, in fact, condemn us—not uh, out of their intention, but be, or, or because it's something objective within themselves but rather it's our subjective fallen reaction to them that becomes more apparent as we get down the line and you you see something like blessed are the merciful and you go oh i haven't been very merciful or or um e- even maybe more to the point blessed are the pure in heart and oh well i could never be pure in heart okay let's talk about that as we get there so what i think jesus is doing And Jesus does this all the time. He is the master of it, is he just speaks. And depending upon who you are, his words strike you as law or gospel. If you count yourself to be utterly impoverished and destitute of spirit, if you count yourself to basically be the junkie under the bridge in and of yourself, now I'm th- talking about you apart from Christ, okay? Imagine you in yourself, in your fallen nature, period, the end. And I I mean, what do I think I would be? I, maybe literally a junkie under the bridge. I don't know. Um, but spiritually, certainly that, even if I was worldly, you know, successful in a worldly standpoint, spiritually, I'd be utterly destitute and impoverished and completely upside down and lost. And so when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, I cannot think of anything more comforting. I cannot think of anything more comforting than him saying, I came for the lost. I came for the poor. I came for the sick. So I view that as, but now if you're a Pharisee and you've built your entire, or you're a guru and you've built your entire life on your spiritual stature and standing, and maybe you even collect a living from people coming and listening to your great wisdom and you bossing them around and telling them what you know amazing to you thought came into your mind that morning. Then you hear Jesus bless not you, the rich in spirit, but the poor in spirit, and you feel what? Condemned. I think Jesus does this masterfully in his sermon where he just simply speaks one word and it condemns who it needs to condemn and absolves gospels, encourages, however you want to put it, exactly who it needs to. And I kind of think that that goes along so that I, I'm inclined to see, it not only at this place, but at many places, what Jesus says is a law aspect and a gospel aspect, depending upon who you are or how you take it. Okay, hopefully that helps. Yeah. Yes, thank you. That, right. That's great. All right. So we've hit the first two then. Blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are those who mourn or lament. Um, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and they will be or shall be, future tense, comforted. Here's the third. Blessed are the meek, the pre, the praise, or prayice. um, Which can also mean humble, humble and meek going together. I think the way we misread this is like demure or milk toast or something like that. and We think that it's our job as Christians to aspire to not be bold. But that would be an error. Um, Paul, especially in the proclamation of the word, prays that God would make him bold. So, again, some mileage can be gotten from this one. If we look later on in Matthew at Matthew eleven twenty nine, where Jesus says, "Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for praus am I." It's it's a different form, but the same word. And tapinos of heart, so I am humble and lowly of heart. Um, What does Jesus mean by that? I I think in our terms, it he's not full of himself. He's not an egomaniac. He's not arrogant. Even though he's without sin, he's not without compassion. He doesn't look down his nose, etc. So as we look at blessed are the meek, I think we want to be meek in just the way that Jesus is. So we can get a fair bit of mileage out of that um, comparison here in this particular beatitude. Now again, what is the blessing? For they shall... Inherit. Shall inherit is the future tense. And inherit, not to make too much of it, it, because I'm not sure it's really what Jesus intends, but it does have within it a sense of death in order to receive an inheritance. So maybe a subtle allusion to Christ's death and the inheritance we receive probably more in view though here is that the earth ultimately belongs to the meek which again I think this is the most profitable way to read the Beatitudes is contrast that with the ethos of the world ethos of the world is blessed are the strong the conquerors, the ruthless go look at the CEOs and the richest people in the world and they're absolutely sadistically cutthroat Meek is not at all what you would describe them as. So what is Jesus doing? In one sense, he's, he's casting a very different vision, but that's too weak, far too weak. Jesus is stating objectively, factually, as only God could, a completely different worldview. A completely different, except it's objective and factual. It makes any other worldview false. It makes any other worldview a delusion. In the objective reality, the meek are blessed because they will receive what Christ gives in the present and in the future. The arrogant are not blessed because they will not receive these things. I think... What Mary's Magnificat in Luke is, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew is, this is an upside-downing of the structures and expectations of the world. The mighty are cast down, the rich are sent away empty, the lowly are exalted, the uh, the hungry are fed with good things. And the same kind of subversion is happening here, where the poor in spirit are blessed, the mourning are blessed, the meek are blessed, which is exactly opposite of how this world works. This world run by who? Satan and the fallen human nature. Okay. Four, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Which again, um, that's that is the twist right there. Of course. <laughs> It's never good to hunger and thirst. Well, it is if you're hungering and thirsting for sune, for righteousness. For they shall be, I'll see if I can do this as a long, multisyllabic word, Kortas thesontai, fed, satisfied, or fattened. It's often used for uh, animals that hunger and thirst. So um, the whole world is filled with people who hunger and thirst for all manner of things that won't profit them. To hunger and thirst for righteousness puts you in a blessed state, because we future tense shall be satisfied, fed, fattened, even. Uh, Dekaiosune is a is the word that. You know, in the broad sense it just means the goodness of God. It contains law and gospel, justice and mercy. And the narrow sense, Dekaiosune can be distinguished the Dekaiosune of the law or the Dekaiosune of God revealed in Christ. So is it a righteousness that is of the law or a righteousness apart from the law in Christ, freely and graciously given? Ultimately, it's that. Uh, but here at this level, Jesus probably is not making that technical distinction. Righteousness is simply the goodness. Um, we might even say the um, the justice and mercifulness of God. Okay, off to seven, which is the f- verse seven, which is the fifth beatitude. Blessed are the Eleamonos, uh, the, the, the merciful, for they shall receive Elea e Thesonte mercy. And I don't think that Jesus intends this to condemn us. He, this to, uh, he intends this to identify us. If we are His, we will be as He is. He is merciful. We will be merciful. We will receive mercy. straightforward enough again, I mean, contrast that with the world. The merciful are suckers. The merciful are doormats. The merciful aren 't sticking up for themselves, etc, cetera, etc cetera. okay, um, blessed are the catharoi now that's the pure the cleansed that language itself at least in kind of old testament ears is the language of purification done in the temple cult so um, blessed are the pure that cleansed in heart i don't think that this has to, i mean this doesn't have to do anything with inequality within us that we muster for ourselves to be cleansed or purified in heart can come only through God who cleanses and purifies. If you're hearing this with Old Testament ears, it can come only through blood. It's where John in, in his epistle will say that it's the blood of Jesus that cleanses us, purifies us. in uh, And thus, to see here pure in heart would be purified in heart. I don't mean to say that that doesn't have any ontological or uh, moral quality to it. It most certainly does. It's a heart made pure, but that purification doesn't come from the heart's own doing. It comes from outside of the heart from Christ. That's my take on this. I suppose in one sense purity of heart, but that would be more truthfulness. I don't know. In one sense purity of heart can be one willing to confess one's sins and simply state the truth about oneself and receive that absolution that could count as purity of heart but i don't i think a different word would be used so i default back to purity of heart essentially being something received to have your heart cleansed by christ all right here's the promise for they shall future tense see god the beatific vision to behold god as he is Okay, um, on to the seventh beatitude, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, which I don't love, because peacemakers to us usually is like has kind of an intermediary sense. Like there's two contentious parties, and you immediately jump into the middle and make peace between the two of them. But that's not, I mean, that would be a subset of what Jesus is talking about, and it would be pretty, down, <laughs> pretty far down the chain. Okay, so what is the actual language? Arene uh, is peace. So Ereine, Ereino, uh, Poyeo, or Poyoy. <laughs> That's what it is, it's Poyoy. It's like really hard to say. So Poyoy is doers. <coughs> doers or makers, but in the sense of getting something done. And irene, uh is peace. So these are peace doers. Um, and if you think of peace from the Hebrew as shalom it carries with it that sense of wholeness and wholesomeness so in other words what I think blessed are the peacemakers are and we just think immediately like okay I gotta go find two warring parties and jump in the middle and then I'm a peacemaker that that's not what's primarily in view here primarily in view as one who is furthering the wholeness and wholesomeness of God into, the, into their lives and the lives of their neighbors Infusing this into the lives of their families. To be a peace doer is to be a shalom doer, to be one who is making um, the, pr- the presence and stability, the wholeness and wholesomeness of God manifest vocationally and in one's life. That's what I think a peacemaker, a peace doer is, a shalom doer is. Okay? So, would that include mediating between two warring parties? Sure but that's not the primary thing in view here and I think it's not the primary thing we ought to have in view when Jesus says this. Okay. Blessed are the shalom doers, um the those who bring peace uh and wholeness into people's lives. I, I there is kind of a turn here where um you know, I think I think Yeah, I think, the, and the I, I don't know, I go back and forth on this. You know, the pure in heart, what does the world want to do with innocence? What does it want to do with any kind of purity or cleansed heart? It immediately wants to tempt it into fallenness. And you just see this all the time. Um, it can't stand purity of heart. It wants to be joined in its wickedness. So again, I, I think it's the world's not a merciful place. The world would have you hunger and thirst for anything but righteousness, hunger and thirst for the next product in our context. Um, so too, you know, not be merciful, be cutthroat, not be pure in heart, but join in the revelry. And then not be a peacemaker in the sense of bringing wholesomeness. I mean, how much of the world is really about wholesomeness and holiness and the kind of calm and peace and steadfast love of God? Not None of that. It's, it's really where I think in the decades to come, the greatest evangelical or... I- evangelistic tool we're going to have could easily be summarized as wholesomeness to be a place that is wholesome and that is outspoken against the unwholesomeness of the world around us because the human soul craves wholesomeness even when it's absolutely depraved it craves wholesomeness so I think that that is especially maybe in view for us Um, as we consider, like, being a peace-doer. All right, um, 10 is the eighth beatitude, and in a sense, might be the end of the beatitudes proper. The eighth would make sense just in terms of a numeric, because Jesus has come to bring about the eighth day, the new creation, the new dawn. It would make sense if he begins this new Creation with his new sermon that has eight new and very contrary blessings or beatitudes. That would make perfect sense. What also is the, uh, the textual argument for this being the final beatitude? Blessed are those who are persecuted. Now, of course, that's contrary to the way the world thinks. Avoid suffering at all costs who are persecuted for righteousness. Again, to kaiosune, the same righteousness we're supposed to hunger and thirst for. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs estin, we're back to the present tense. For theirs is and then we're back at the kingdom of heaven. So that forms a perfect inclusio with the first. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now here, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that seems to be a little mini-unit. And whereas these are just indicative, objectively spoken, look what changes in the ninth beatitude, which I would argue is is of a different class. And that is... um, Wait a minute, did I get my... No, I didn't. Um, and then, so verse 11 would be the ninth beatitude, and look what it, look how it breaks formula. Blessed are you, plural. So the others are indicatively or objectively sp- spoken. Blessed are such and such, for they have such and such, or will receive such and such. And now this one breaks and says, blessed are you, Analogous to a breaking of the fourth wall. So blessed are you, plural. And this one is every bit is um, also subversive. Blessed are you when others speak well of you. And shower you with blessings. And utter all kinds of praises upon you for my account. That's what we all want. <laughs> That's what we all want. So there again, you can, as you meditate on this, like that can function as law but it really functions as gospel because if you're about the business of Christ, um, then what's going to happen to you is what happened to the prophets. So blessed are you, not when people speak well of you, but rather... When others revile you and persecute you i mean i think if you were listening to this sermon you'd have your jaw open because of how subversive and counterintuitive it is the only reason we have a hard time is because we've spent decades hearing it and it sounds normal to us it even, might even sound kind of boring and platitude-esque. it was not i guarantee when jesus was preaching this sitting down on the mountaintop as god in the human flesh people were like <laughs> it's just so wild who would dare to preach this way let alone preach this way authoritatively. So, blessed are you precisely when others revile you, to ridicule you, obviously, that kind of thing, mock you, and persecute you, cause you to uh, suffer for what it is you're doing, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. The sense here is lying. Um, on my account, and of course those words being all important, because of your association with me. And again, that I think is an important, just exegetical cue to how we're to read these, is Jesus says to the crowd, look, he's saying all all these statements, the crowd can do with those as they will, receive them as they do. But then he turns directly, second person plural, blessed are you, associating them with him. When you suffer these things on account of me. His assumption is that if you are in me, you are a blessed one. You are the ones that I'm describing. um, And you are going to suffer for your association with me. But count yourself blessed when you experience this. Okay, verse 12. Rejoice and be glad. Which again is absolutely contrary to how we feel when we suffer any form of persecution or reviling, someone utters evil on us, against us falsely for Christ's sake, rejoice and be glad, he says. Why? For your reward is great in heaven. Future reward, just like we saw in the Beatitudes, future reward promised, and no fear in this concept of being rewarded Great is your reward in heaven. Four, so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Which is to say, do you admire the prophets as the heroes and saints of God? Absolutely, par excellence. Well, as you suffer, your rejoicing and joy comes from the knowledge that God has called you into that very role. That you be... Persecuted, and that you suffer just as they did, and just as they've received their heavenly reward, so also you will receive heavenly reward. So again, important, because Jesus, right off the bat, knows that he himself will be persecuted and killed on the cross, knows that his followers will be persecuted, and takes us back to the scriptures, where so it has always been that God is hated, his prophets are hated, um, his prophets are slain. So Christ will be slain, and those who follow him will be slain, and or just suffer tremendously. And yet, will be blessed. Eightfold blessed, ninefold blessed, however you want to see this. Okay, that takes us through the Beatitudes. Let me pause. We have maybe just a brief minute. If you have any questions or any comments, anything you want me to clarify. Um, again, I think Jesus is setting forward for us What we would kind of translate as a worldview, just the force of it, is this is the objective reality. This is the truth that trumps all other worldviews, all other narratives. It upside downs every culture of every place and draws us all into a new reality, namely this kingdom of heaven with Christ that he is inviting us and um, everyone into. All right.